From the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. Today, we will be discussing genetic counseling considerations related to the intersex community. We will share some research findings from capstone and thesis projects, surveying or interviewing members of the intersex community, as well as perspectives from parents of intersex children. I'm joined by podcast subcommittee member Leanne Jimmins, who is going to tell us a bit more about today's episode. Welcome, Leanne. Hello, I'm so excited for this episode and the chance to feature projects and genetic counselors that amplify the voices of the intersex community. We often try to find articles from the journal Genetic Counseling that are related to our episodes to feature, but this time we couldn't find any. This was disappointing considering about 2% of people are diagnosed as intersex, which is thought to be an underestimate since many go undiagnosed. That's a fairly common genetic variation relative to the variety of rare diagnoses we know so much about, making the lack of research on this topic even more frustrating. This only further demonstrated how important it was to use this platform to bring more folks into this conversation so we can learn how to better advocate for and empower the intersex community. Intersex is an umbrella term that describes individuals with physical sex characteristics that do not conform to conventional, medical, and social binary definitions of male or female bodies, including variations in the gonads, genitals, secondary sex characteristics, hormones, or chromosomes. Medicine and society have historically over-pathologized and stigmatized traits that do not fall in the sex and gender binary, so we tried our best to avoid further othering or pathologizing terms. We want to acknowledge that language is ever-evolving and not a one-size-fits-all. We use the terms intersex, differences of sex development, or DSDs, variations of sex characteristics, or VSCs, intersex variations, and sex variations interchangeably. Our speakers use terms that their participants and patients self-identified with. However, we understand that not everyone may prefer the terms we use and encourage listeners to respect the terms that are used by folks within the community they are speaking about. Although we make connections between issues affecting both the intersex community and the LGBTQIA community as a whole, sex, gender, and sexual orientation are distinct identities, one of which does not influence the other. Queer is a reclaimed term also used as an umbrella term for LGBTQIA identities, but not everyone in the community identifies with this term. Again, we remind everyone to respect individual preferences and the history that has shaped them. Thanks, Leanne. Our first speakers today are Darius Hagigat and Kayla Horowitz. Darius just graduated from Boston University's Genetic Counseling Program, where his capstone project focused on intersex people's experiences in healthcare. Darius is now a prenatal and cancer genetic counselor at Boston Medical Center. Kayla is also a recent graduate. Kayla is a neurogenetics counselor at the Montreal Neurological Institute and a new graduate from the McGill University Genetic Counseling Program. Now, I'll turn it over to Darius, Kayla, and podcast subcommittee member Jessica Dronin. Hey, everybody. This is Jessica Dronin. I'm joined by two new genetic counselors, Darius Agigat and Kayla Horowitz. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's jump in with Darius's project first. He specifically looked at experiences of intersex individuals in the medical setting. So Darius, how did you choose your thesis project? 
as a queer genetic counseling trainee, I knew that my capstone project would have something to do with LGBTQIA healthcare experiences. And admittedly, I didn't know enough about intersex healthcare before starting the program. Still probably don't now, but learning a lot every day. And just seeing the ways that the intersex community has been so harmed by these ideas of the sex and gender binary, and you can't see, but I'm using the air quotes when I say that, really motivated me to, to do a little bit more research into this population. And it's also just a group for whom genetics kind of plays a more obvious role for some of the more common intersex variations. And I was really disappointed to see how little research has been done in a healthcare context that wasn't specifically diagnostic or really overly medicalizing. And it felt important to really center the voices of intersex people in their own care. And that's sort of what got me started on this project. How did you choose who to include in your study? And also, how did you choose to use or not use the term intersex? I kind of went into this not knowing how many participants I could expect to get. I had my inclusion criteria as simply being 18 years of age or older, speaking English, and having an intersex variation or identifying as intersex. And I tried to keep it as broad as I could, sent out a survey, posted it on social media, and I got more folks filling it out than I expected to, which was great because that meant that I could try to diversify across intersex variations as much as possible, as well as across race and ethnicity as much as possible to try to capture how some of those experiences might be different. In terms of choosing the words to publicize the study, that was something that I thought a lot about. Because in the medical community, you'll, you'll often hear DSD being thrown around as the term. Some people will say it's DSD for differences of sex development, but the origins of the term were disorders of sex development. And I think that that kind of language is still pretty pervasive in medical spaces. And it's really pathologizing. And it's something that intersex advocates have repeatedly spoken out against saying, you know, this isn't a disorder, this is a natural human variation, can we stop framing it in that kind of way? So I opted to advertise my study just using the term intersex. I recognize that in doing so, I might be missing out on the perspectives of folks who do identify with DSD. And I think that the biggest takeaway I had from that vein is just ask the person who's in front of you what terms they prefer. Can you share any prevalent or recurring themes that came up with your interviews? That depathologizing language piece came up quite a bit. I had some questions about preferred terminology, and, and one of the senses I got was how valuable it is to just normalize these intersex variations. The importance of normalizing that sex exists along a spectrum was big. Autonomy was also big. This is a community that has been pretty harmed by breaches of autonomy at the hands of the medical system, from newborn surgeries that are only for cosmetic purposes so this is separate from surgeries that might be to allow someone to urinate. Things like that are medically necessary. Many people talking about having information hidden from them. So the need for transparency was really, really big. And the need for healthcare professionals to recognize that this is a community that's been traumatized by their experiences in medical settings. And so needing to really focus on the psychosocial aspects of care and earning patients' trust was another really big area. To expand on that a little bit, did the intersex folks you interviewed have any suggestions for first when and how to explain the diagnosis to intersex children and then also how to balance supporting a minor's autonomy when following guidelines and legal rights of the parents? Yeah, I did ask a number of participants how they thought would be the best way to deliver the news to a child who is maybe newly found out they were intersex. And what I repeatedly heard from a lot of people was to just 
employ this really phased approach at sharing the news in a similar way that you would have the birds and the bees conversation with the child. And as they get older, you can add a little bit more of the detail, a little bit more of the medical and scientific side of it as they're able to digest that. But you can keep it simple and you can frame it in a way that's normalizing. In terms of balancing supporting minors' autonomy and the rights of parents, anytime the matter of cosmetic surgery was brought up on minors, they unequivocally said that it should be something that the child is able to voice their opinion on. So whether that means waiting until age of consent at 18, or if that means maybe waiting until they're old enough to at least give assent, I recognize that that obviously makes for an interesting conversation to have with the family. And I think that there's a way to go about that really carefully. But I think a big part of it is just reframing the questions so that parents understand what the merits of surgery actually are, what it can and can't do, and what adults who have had this decision made for them have felt afterwards to make sure that the decision that's being reached by the parents is one that is as informed as possible by the experiences of those who have lived that. And I think that that's another big barrier. It's just there's very rarely an intersex adult in the room to offer that insight. And that was a big part of why I wanted to do the study was just if we could get guidelines straight from those who have this lived experience, can we use that to have these conversations in a little bit more of a nuanced way and in a way that hopefully allows parents to make a more informed decision? Can you talk a little bit more about the effects of focusing on that surgical interventions instead of addressing the psychosocial issues that go along with that? This is an area that I'd have some trouble being completely non-directive. I think whether it's intentional or not, the message comes across that surgery is really the only option that's available for parents and children. And again, we're speaking exclusively about cosmetic surgeries here, not the medically necessary ones. I feel like I have to challenge that because nearly every participant I spoke to felt really strongly that it should be a choice that it requires consent, or at the very least, assent. And when it's presented as the only option, or it's presented by someone in a position of authority, I'm not sure if lots of families know that saying no is a really valid option to the question of whether or not to pursue this genderplasty. And I think that's important because when we try to correct intersex people, what we're really doing is erasing this population, and we're upholding this binary view of sex that's really a social construct. So intersex people are proof that the sex binary is not this inherent biological reality. Sex traits exist on a spectrum, much like gender does. And as genetic counselors and as healthcare providers in general, we really shouldn't be shying away from having these complex and nuanced conversations about sex and gender. Because when we do that, we're perpetuating these notions about sex being a binary thing. And then you hear people saying it's science or it's biology to justify really transphobic and really interphobic legislation and rhetoric, which I think we're seeing happen in real time right now. So taking the time to have that nuanced and careful conversation about these topics is just one step that that we can take towards dismantling that really harmful ideology. And I think that it's really our responsibility to our patients and to the general public to do that, because we can't ignore the fact that the same surgeries and hormone replacement that are being forced on intersex children are at the same time being denied to trans people in many parts of the country who are making the autonomous decision to transition. And lots of anti-trans bills have explicit exceptions to allow for the continuation of newborn genitoplasty on intersex children. And there are laws like the one in Ohio that would allow student athletes to have their sex verified if they're suspected to be trans, which is also immensely harmful to intersex children. It's just really disheartening to see how the medical system has been co-opted and taken out of context in order to gatekeep the sex and gender binary instead of doing what it should be doing and empowering patients to make decisions about their own care that aligns with their own identities. We can't forget that gender-affirming care really saves lives. 
How do you feel your own experiences or identity impacted your project? For example, did you disclose your identity with your study participants? Yes. So at the start of every interview, I shared that I'm a queer genetic counseling trainee. I immediately followed that up by saying I myself am not intersex because I wanted to be up challenging the ways that the binary is really harmful to our patients is something that I care about. And so it felt like an important thing for me to share from the get go. Also, LGBTQIA, the broader acronym includes intersex. So that was something that felt important for me to share because that was the proximity that I had to this community while at the same time recognizing that I'm not myself a member. And I recognize that folks who are intersex have different feelings about being included within the broader LGBT acronym. I know many people I spoke to mentioned that it was really beneficial in many ways because it did get some visibility out there, while others expressed feeling that it was overshadowed by other identities represented within the queer spectrum. And so just recognizing that there's pros and cons to things like this, and it's not all black and white. Earlier, you talked about trauma-informed care being a theme in what your participants talked about. So can you talk a bit about what you learned about trauma-informed approach to care, or also how the sustained medical trauma in the intersex community can lead to gaps in care? A lot of people I spoke to shared that because of experiences they had in healthcare settings, they discontinued care for, in some cases, years at a time. And this is something that we see with other LGBTQ populations, where sustaining trauma in a medical context obviously makes folks a lot less keen to go back to see their doctors who were microaggressing them or traumatizing them when they saw them. Many intersex people are kind of put on display when they're in a medical appointment. Doctors will bring in a ton of different medical trainees to kind of watch them without really fully asking the patient's consent. Many participants talked about having examinations done or questions asked that they felt were not related to the reason they went in to seek care. I think the collection of experiences like this over time can really lead to a really negative association with medical contexts and with clinical visits. And I think trauma-informed care is really the only way to address that and to correct for it and to improve relationships with patients that this happens to a lot. Patients don't owe us their trust. That's something that we as providers are tasked with earning from our patients. And it's especially important with any group that's been marginalized historically. The medical system has let a lot of people down and it's harmed a lot of people. And so a trauma-informed approach to care means being mindful of the prior experiences that your patients might have had before coming, making sure that you're centering that patient's autonomy. Autonomy comes up a lot with intersex care, as you can tell by now, making sure that they feel empowered to say yes and no, making sure that they feel like they're an active member of their own treatment plan, making sure that psychosocial supports are available, that their mental health needs are being met. They're able to process things that might have happened to mitigate snowballing that trauma over a longer period of time. Those are all things that I think are really important, especially when working with intersex patients. So it sounds like something that would be really important for all of us to learn more about. I agree. I absolutely agree. So now we're going to talk to Kayla about her project focusing on the parent perspective of children who are born with intersex differences. Thank you for joining us, Kayla. To get right into it, how did you choose your thesis project? So I first attended a talk by Katie Saulnier a couple of years back, who is an incredible lawyer and academic, and they really opened my eyes to gaps in intersex healthcare, as well as gaps in intersex research. And so when I entered the genetic counseling program, I was quite interested in this field, and I had already started doing a little bit of a literature review and really trying to see how I can possibly fill in some of these gaps. 
And so I did a deep dive in the literature. I tried to become more informed on the historical context. And I really recognized that there was a lack of person-centered narratives in the research. But I also recognized the pervasive harms faced by intersex individuals in medical practice. It made me reflect on how important it would be to deliver sensitive, non-alarming healthcare, as well as compassionate healthcare for these families. And so it really led me to wonder how healthcare professionals can possibly improve the support and the education that they're offering these families, especially when they're first learning about intersex variations. How did you choose who to include in your study? I chose to include parents in this study because for one, I recognize that they carry a big responsibility in terms of being the medical decision makers and in consenting to medical practices and medical interventions in early infancy as well as in childhood. But I also began to consider how parents also carry a significant influence in behaviors that they model to their children, as well as in shaping what language that they use and referring to their child's bodies and how children eventually view themselves. And so it became clear in this thought process, as well as in my literature review, that parents are really integral in promoting their child's well-being, their child's self-acceptance, as well as their child's self-determination. And so I really wanted to explore whether parents felt that there was room for more of a psychosocially nuanced conversation when they're first learning about intersex variations, and whether they felt that this could lead them to feel better equipped to raise their child in a loving and accepting home. Can you share any of the prevalent or recurring themes that came up when you did your interviews? I think one really big thing that came out of my project and in discussing with these parents is that parents are very aware of society's gender binary and the way in which society ascribes to this gender binary. And so I think considering how society is so preoccupied with biological sex and gender and how evident that becomes when people are trying to have children, there's this implicit messaging that is received from the moment that a child is born when they're given a pink blanket or a blue blanket or nowadays even before a child is born. People are asking, is it a boy? Is it a girl? People are throwing gender reveal parties. And so there's this persistent messaging in society that really frames gender in binary terms only. These societal expectations and norms really do carry an influence on how medical professionals disclose this information to parents, but also on how it's interpreted and received by parents. From the doctor's perspective, it became clear that this really bleeds into the language that they're using, the tone or the framing that they're applying, as well as the recommendations that they put forth. My project really elucidated as well that these societal norms can often be drivers of these normalizing genital surgeries. For example, in making it seem like they have to choose one sex or the other, or using a biological, physiological basis to ascribe a gender category, saying, you know, well, we see ovaries, we see a uterus, so it must be a girl. And then from the parent's perspective, parents are really aware of these external pressures to conform or to fit into one of these gender boxes. And so then they're faced with this uncertainty certainty and this fear about how these expectations or norms might impact their child's future well-being. When these surgeries are recommended for reasons such as protecting their child's future, quote-unquote, quality of life, it's not often made clear whether these interventions are presented as being necessary for the child's physical health or whether they're recommended because the clinician believes that it will make the child's life easier from a social perspective. Did you get any results or responses that surprised you? 
it's important to recognize that, of course, this is an exploratory project. And I wasn't going in with any preconceived notions or expectations of what I was expecting to get from my responses. However, all participants really spoke about how important it has been to find community and find support. One thing that I thought was interesting that came forward is that while finding this community can mitigate feelings of isolation for these parents, some parents did discuss how there could be potential for further stigma within support groups due to a difference in opinion or a difference in decisions that they've made for their child's care. This division or this dichotomy can possibly promote parents being more secretive in these groups or could deter them from seeking this means of support altogether. Another piece that came through in my project that I found to be quite surprising was that many of my participants discussed having given their hospitals their consent to be recontacted by future parents or families going through similar experiences. And it was really disappointing to learn that despite having given this explicit consent, none of these participants had been contacted through their hospitals. I think that this further underlines the importance of putting greater onus on hospital providers to really build these bridges for these parents and to facilitate their connection with local families who may have been in their same position before. I want to go back a little when you were talking about parents facing stigma relating the decisions that they made. Did you find that parents showed any sort of regret for decisions that they had made about their child's care? I think it's a really interesting question that you're asking. In general, I'd like to highlight that I feel like it's a, a normal human process to look back and reflect and question some decisions that you might have made in the past. And so given the fact that this is a life-altering intervention for their child and for the family at large, it would only make sense that that same process would occur, but even more so just because of the importance of it. So I think I would actually choose to reframe that word regret as it can really be an ongoing dynamic process that involves reflections, reconsiderations and questioning. But yes, absolutely. I found that parents processing of decisions that they've made in the care of their child was complex and they did take responsibility for those decisions. Some parents might feel that as regret, but I also think that some might feel that as really doing their best in the context of what they knew at the time. And so I really do think that all of this does depend on that initial interaction in learning of their child's variation of sex characteristics or VSC. How informed was that person who was sharing that information with them? How neutral were they without that bias of what they think the parent should be doing or how compassionate they were in that interaction? One thing that also came through in my project is that many parents spoke of acceptance work to really not feel guilty and to recognize that they simply made decisions based off of the tools and resources and guidance that was available to them at that time. Our field has evolved over time, but it evidently has so much farther to go as well. Did parents have suggestions for how healthcare providers can ensure they're obtaining truly informed consent when decisions have to be made in that sort of high stress, high emotion environment? Yeah, I think one thing that is incredibly important, as Darius spoke about a little bit earlier as well, is the idea of being fully transparent. Parents definitely noted that they felt that some providers omitted information relating to their child's immediate well-being, relating to the available services, what interventions might be coming up in the future, or the long-term implications of these interventions. Many parents felt like they were not actually told that it's not a one-time surgery, but it will require recurrent visits as the patient gets older, for example. And so having this greater communication, this greater transparency on these topics, being honest about what 
doctors know, but also what they're uncertain about in VSC care. All of this, I think, would have really provided parents with a greater sense of control, support, and partnership in their child's healthcare as well. And I think another piece about this idea that, of course, it is a high stress environment, especially if it's very shortly after the parents just gave birth. And so I think really highlighting that this does not have to be rushed. It's not a decision that needs to be made today or tomorrow or at all, and really allowing that time. One thing that has been well documented in the literature is that healthcare professionals are implicitly trusted as the experts. And as such, many parents don't question their authority. I think this becomes increasingly important to allow parents that time to digest that information and connect them with other families, other support groups, provide them with tangible resources and educational materials that are readily available online that were created by community-led organizations. These are all means by which parents can sort of seek out their own information. Did parents feel comfortable talking about their children being intersex with their friends and family, or did they face stigmas related to that? Parents have consistently advocated for needing more support in how to discuss their child's variation with others, whether it be friends and family, whether it be the child themselves, whether it be their co-parent. And so I think this is something that we definitely need to work more on in the future. But definitely some parents discussed feeling like they need to be a little bit cautious and being uncertain about who would be safe to share this information with. Some families also discussed the fact that they have family members who are non-English speakers, and so they didn't actually have the language to articulate what the variation is or how it arose with their family members. And so when we're teaching about these intersex variations and these families are learning about it in one language, and yet they don't know how to communicate that to family members in another language, it really does emphasize the importance of multilingual providers, but also resources that are provided in multiple languages to really take that responsibility off of the patient and needing to be that active interpreter. Another piece that came through in my interviews is the importance of allowing their child the time and space to tell their own story. Although it might reinforce parents' feelings of isolation in that they also need their own means of support, it also was found, at least as reported by the parents in my study, that it really does promote their child's empowerment and being able to choose the time and place and who to share that information with, in line with at least finding their own support and a safe space for themselves. Many parents did discuss finding community in support groups and the amazing enlightening resources that they were able to receive through those spaces. So like learning about VSC clinics, for example, also seeing other families who have been through it and are happy and healthy or bringing in trusted healthcare professionals or experts in the field to lead informational sessions. And also it's just a really, really safe space for these families to connect with other parents and for children to connect with other children. In terms of possible stigmas that they have faced, one big piece that sort of came through is that some people have found that their friends really conflate variations in sex or gender with variations in sexual orientation. So for example, one parent said that they shared it with a friend and their friend said, oh, so your child is going to be gay. And so I think there's this misconception of the sex spectrum, for example, referring to like the gender unicorn could be a really great resource for some of these parents in discussing this with some of their friends or family so that they don't necessarily have to be that person to sort of tackle that stigma or confront that stigma. All right. So we're going to transition and bring Darius and Kayla together. What was it like having another student doing a similar project since there's not a lot of research on this? How did you guys connect? 
So we managed to connect with each other actually because we both had the same member on our supervisory committee, Kim Zahowski. I had actually heard Kim speak on this podcast a few years back and was incredibly stimulated by her topic and had reached out in hopes that she would be willing to be on my committee as well. And when she learned that I was interested in this topic and Darius was as well, she really put through the steps to connect us. Yeah, I'm so grateful for that. Kim has been a real MVP with both of our projects. And we like have had so many conversations, just Kayla and I talking about how happy we are to have been connected with each other. I think in the genetic counseling space, it can possibly be really intimidating if you find out that someone's doing research in the same space as you. You want to be innovative. At least for myself, I found it very exciting to know that we were both really undertaking this incredible privilege of increasing visibility for the intersex community, not only within our own programs, but also within our field. And so I felt like it was a great privilege. I agree. And it made the work easier on one hand, just because like I had someone who we were both doing very similar like background literature reviews and research. So just like from a pure really practical standpoint, super helpful. But beyond that, so heartening to be able to connect with a GC trainee at a totally different program. We might not have met otherwise, if not for this, because we're both so passionate about this kind of work. It was very gratifying and just really reinforced for me the importance of this kind of research and how cool it is to connect with someone who just cares about the same issues. When you were doing these interviews, did they have a sort of emotional toll? If so, how did you cope or process? Do you have advice for other students who might choose these sorts of heavier, emotionally charged topics for their project? At least for myself, I limited the number of interviews I did to like a maximum of two a day because these conversations can be pretty heavy and loaded and also just to be able to keep them separate from one another in your own memory. I know that there were definitely conversations that hit a little bit harder and I needed to take some time afterwards, decompress a little bit. But for me, it was knowing that this was just me hearing someone's story for an hour and and not someone who has lived with these experiences, I think really motivated me to share the experiences that were shared with me so graciously to make sure that they're not just part of a student capstone project that never sees the light of day. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I feel like it was incredibly motivating. It made me really want to see the project through because I wanted to do their narratives justice. I felt that a couple interviews were definitely a little bit harder to swallow. But I do think that emotional heaviness was really overshadowed by the gratification of really leading these interviews and connecting with these parents. Just like anything else throughout our program, there are going to be things that do take an emotional toll on us. And I tried to deal with it in a similar way as I would just like in clinics. So, you know, debriefing with classmates or with Darius or with my mentors or or just with other professionals in this field, I felt was really important for me as well. So you guys both went to different programs, a good opportunity to discuss. There are some variations in ways training programs teach about VSCs if they do at all, really. So is there anything you think is especially important for all GCs in training to learn about? For example, terminology differences, history, ethical considerations, social stigmas. Well, first, I'd just like to say, I think all of those topics are important that you just highlighted. So it is hard to sort of narrow down on one. But if I had to, I think that most importantly, we really do need to work on separating the medical issues from the intersex trade itself. So for example, salt wasting could be a medical issue that would be important that we address, but the genital variance is not. And so I think we need to really move away from that pathological framing of disorder or difference or ambiguity, because it really is just a natural human variation. And while I think that some 
some of that can absolutely be incorporated into our coursework and our, our readings. I also think it can be incorporated in our clinical exposures and the examples that our clinical supervisors model for us in how they present these variations to families and how they discuss it with others. I think that that also speaks to really incorporating patient stories and patients' lived experiences. I really don't think that there's anyone better that can add that than the people who have lived it themselves. I think that's really a part of collaboration in updating our information that we're provided, bringing in patient advocates or people themselves who have lived this experience. I think it would not only be very important for us to get this perspective, but it would also make it more personal for us as students. I agree like 1000% with all of what Kayla just said. The only thing that I would say aside from that is the ethics of autonomy, which I'm sounding like a broken record at this point, because I know I keep bringing it up, but really prioritizing the autonomy of intersex folks to make decisions for their own selves, about their own bodies, for their own futures is something that just needs to be central to this conversation for anyone who's getting trained on it. Kayla, you talked about the importance of hearing from those individuals directly impacted by an issue. So how did you prepare to work with communities you didn't personally share those identities with? Did you have to participate in any sort of additional cultural sensitivity training or how did you prepare for that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. A cultural sensitivity training wasn't necessarily mandated by my program to run this project. However, I can share a bit about what I did for myself. For one, I employed what's called an integrated knowledge transfer design, which is essentially including all relevant community members and clinicians throughout the study development to really assess whether there are any gaps. For example, like the interview guide that I prepared to see whether they had any questions that they would like to add or remove and really provide additional feedback. Back. I also included a medical liaison at Interact Advocates for Intersex Youth, an amazing advocacy organization, as well as an intersex adult and a parent of an intersex child. I also did a really deep literature review. It never really ended, and I thought that was very important. I think also going into those interviews with the recognition that the parents are the expert of their own experience. So no matter how much I read, no matter how much background I try and accumulate, I don't have that background or knowledge. And really going into those interviews without any assumptions, really not asking parents to educate me about the community, but asking them to educate me about themselves and about their experience and really understanding them as an individual within the community. Our program also did not have an additional cultural sensitivity component for our project, but by virtue of being affiliated with a safety net hospital, we just talk so much about the importance of positionality, about recognizing where your identities overlap with your patients, where they might differ and how that plays into patient care. And then I was fortunate to take a qualitative methods course that talked even more about the importance of positionality and research and recognizing when communities are collaborating on research versus what research can look like if you're not getting that feedback and that buy-in from the community that you're working with. So that was, I know, a question that was really central on my mind. And Kayla and I had so many conversations about this, like how do we involve this community in a respectful way in this research, in a way that's in line with their goals, in a way that does not take their voices away from them? How are we doing this in a way that the intersex community is actually going to benefit from it? And just constantly being like, am I the right person to be asking this question? But it's not being asked. So like, we feel like we have to ask these questions. So I think that that was a fun thing to think about quite a bit. What are you hoping genetic counselors and other healthcare providers really take away from your studies in this conversation? One important takeaway from this that I hope is something that we see even more and more of moving forward is just this idea of involving the patient populations that you're researching and the work that you're doing and being really careful about when conducting research 
what are the goals? What are the outcomes? What are the potential ways that this could impact the patients that you're asking about? And are their voices actually being heard? Or are we kind of talking about these different groups as like this third party who aren't really at the table making these decisions about how care is being performed? So I think that obviously that's front of mind with intersex folks. And that's something that we both care quite a bit about. I think that that's just a good practice to put towards working with any marginalized community rather than assuming that we as medical professionals know best because I think when we do that, we fall into the trap of just perpetuating these systems that are so harmful. And without really critically reassessing that, we can't really break those cycles. Yeah, I think that's an amazing point. I think just to build on that is how parents are hoping to be educated in this space. Many parents, at least in my project, discuss really wanting to have a greater consideration of the multifaceted aspects of gender in these early conversations because they felt that it could actually assist in mitigating societal pressures to conform to that gender dichotomy. For example, talking about like the unpredictable nature of gender identity or sexual orientation or talking about the discordant relationship between gender identity and physiological sex characteristics, I think could be incredibly important and informative for these parents, especially if it's not being widely spoken about in their inner circles as well. And as we've already discussed throughout this interview, I think really normalizing intersex identity would be incredibly important for these families, expressing just how common these intersex variations are in society and not giving this false impression of rarity, also situating their child's variation among the full spectrum of variations that can exist are all ways in which we can really help parents and families adjust and reach acceptance. Also using lay language, I think that this is something that really comes through just in our general genetic counseling training is incredibly important. But I think especially in the context of educating parents about their new child's variation in sex characteristics, using lay language and really meeting them where they are can really promote their own ability to articulate what their circumstance is. And this can also assist them when they're trying to seek support from others. Do you guys have any thoughts on how we can enforce these messages or share patient stories without alienating some of our fellow healthcare providers? This is such a good question. And I think it's also something that me and Kayla have talked so much about where we want to do right by the intersex people that we have been trying to advocate for. But we also want to make sure that when we're speaking, we're speaking in a way that's going to be received by those who are also caring for these patients. And so how do you balance those two things? And I, I really think it's a moving target. I think that what I'm going to try to do moving forward is take the position I have within the medical system. So as someone who might not be intersex, but who has heard these stories, being able to share that with other providers in a way that's not confrontational, but rather kind of explaining why the powers that be in the systems that exist are not serving this group of people so that it's a way that kind of removes the onus and the blame off of individual providers and kind of shines a light on how the system itself is really to blame for the issues that we're seeing. It's my hope that at least that paints it in a way that folks are more eager to receive that news rather than saying like what you're doing is completely wrong and it's messed up and uh, like no one wants to hear that obviously. So I think more of like a calling in and a pointing out of how we're all part of this larger overarching thing <laughs> and how we can improve that thing. I hope that that's the road that I can take towards this. Kayla, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about this having worked with parents in your project. 
I agree. It is something that we spoke a lot about because in the end, we are hoping that healthcare providers read our papers and recognize what changes need to be put forth. Definitely, we don't want to alienate any of these healthcare providers. One piece that I've been considering is that if we think about intent and if we understand that doctors and social workers, whoever else in the healthcare profession, they really choose this profession because they have the intent to help. And so if people are choosing to recommend something, it's probably because they truly believe that it's the best thing. Our job as healthcare professionals is really to share information with our patients. But also, we of course want to promote our own internal reflection and our own innovation. And so perhaps through our projects, we can encourage providers to reflect on the question of with a more informed and balanced sharing of information, would that change the trajectory of where things would go for these families? And so I think for one, language is an incredibly important tool. You can think of language as being either collaborative, like we're just sharing another perspective, or it can be provocative or pointing like this is right and this is wrong. That can really have an impact on how the healthcare provider will hear it and how it is received by that provider. We have chosen to advocate on behalf of our patients and this story is not ours. We are acting as an advocate for what they want and what they need, what their preferences are. And so at the end of the day, this is the patient's narrative and what they're saying they need from us in these interactions must be uplifted and taken seriously, regardless of whether that looks poorly upon our healthcare system. I think that's really in line with the goals of community-based participatory research as well. As healthcare providers, it's really about recognizing that we have to listen, even if you won't agree necessarily, or if you feel that you won't agree, but maybe at least it'll allow you to understand their process and their perspective a little bit better. And I'm so happy that Kayla, you mentioned being advocates for the intersect population. I think that it's always good to shine a light on the fact that there's a lot of amazing intersex advocacy organizations that are super outspoken and have guidelines and have recommendations and have information on how to do intersex research in a way that's helpful to the community. And so I think it's always helpful for providers to remember that if you know that you're going to see an intersex patient as you're prepping, or if you just want to be a better ally to the community, there's resources out there that are a phenomenal starting point towards having those conversations. And it's still a way to center the voices of the intersex people themselves instead of making assumptions about what they might need. I want to thank you both so much for joining us and talking about your projects and your work. We're so excited when we can see student research like this being elevated. I think it's a really important topic too. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Darius and Kayla, for sharing about your research and your personal experiences conducting these studies. We appreciate your insights and reflections. I hope Darius and Kayla's work motivates more students and professionals to engage in research and advocacy for the intersex community. So next, Leanne will speak with Rebecca Freeman. Rebecca is a genetic counselor who practices in both reproductive and inpatient pediatric genetics at Valley Children's Hospital. My name is Leanne. I am one of the podcast committee members, and today I'll be interviewing Rebecca Freeman to discuss her thesis project that explored experiences of transgender and intersex communities and how that research has led her into her current position. So I just wanted to start off with how you chose your thesis project. I had a long-standing interest in the needs and experiences of trans people and people who fall into the intersex DSD spectrum. I actually entered grad school knowing I wanted to do research with this group, and I based part of my selection of program on the ability to do this research. I'm obviously not at all an expert, nor do I have the lived experience of being trans or intersex DSD, 
But I had realized a long time ago that these perspectives have been largely understudied or included into the umbrella of LGBTQIA research in general, which I think can be silencing of these perspectives because they're so distinct from other folks who may identify as queer, for example. It was that awareness that drove me and a desire to amplify the voices of people who have lived in these experiences. From your perspective or in your opinion, have you seen that change, improve, or worsen within the genetic counseling community since you were a student? I think that significant progress has been made, but we have a really long way to go. I think that awareness has certainly increased, but the types of languages that we use, the way that we're still describing these variations in clinic, I think that we have space certainly to progress forward and to be more appropriately representative of who we're discussing. And then circling back to your thesis, what was the question of your thesis? I formed a hypothesis and a question largely for formal reasons because I was supposed to, but I really approached this with an exploratory perspective. So I investigated, obviously, satisfaction with healthcare in general and inquired if my research participants had been seen in medical genetics. Unsurprisingly, the intersex folks had been seen in genetics more often, although nowhere near as often as I'd like. So that part didn't surprise me. Both groups reported low satisfaction with healthcare, which unfortunately I was also not surprised by, but they reported really similar levels of dissatisfaction, which was interesting. And I guess, if anything, my question was is there significant variation between these groups? But I really was trying primarily to approach this without bias as much as I could. Were there any results that did surprise you that you weren't expecting? I think it's shocking and disheartening just to read about the amount of stigma that these populations experience. The amount of times that I read a participant saying that they had had their diagnoses withheld from them, treatment withheld, people referring to them with insensitive terms or not using people's preferred names, not using their pronouns over and over and over again. And these are things that we know. These are things that we expect in a way when we are assessing experience in these populations. But even when you know it's there, even when you've heard it before, it, it always hits you, just the extent of it. I was surprised by how it impacted me. And of course, it's nowhere near as impactful to me as someone who's actually living through it. But it's jarring. It's jarring, especially when in a way, it's even more hard to remove myself because I am a medical provider, right? And so you identify at least a little bit with these people who are doing real harm over and over. And it, it, I think it impacts you differently because of that as well. Outside of your position as a medical provider, did you have any personal or social identities that influenced your project or even your training overall? Yeah, so I identify as queer, which I think was hugely impactful and informed a lot of my decision making and perspecting when it comes to research or really doing anything else. Having experienced pretty extreme homophobia myself, I think that gives me an increased empathy of the real fear and stigma concerning challenges to the traditional structure of gender binary and sexuality. Obviously, I'm not trying to say that it's the same thing as folks who fall into the categories that I was researching, but I think that it does share, obviously, some similarities. I've also been in romantic relationships with cis men, cis women, trans people. And in each type of relationship, I've had to navigate not living up to someone's expectations, either societies or in my own queer community when I'm in a relationship with a cis man. I think my own sexuality and romantic history gives me 
a really intimate familiarity with having your identity challenged and invalidated. And I think largely because I ended up marrying a cis man, becoming further involved with the LGBTQIA community, it became even more important to me, both to selfishly validate my own identity and because, frankly, now I can act as an ally and leverage the privilege that my relationship provides me. I love that you brought that up, still being queer. I'm queer myself and having that identity and then being in a heterosexual or straight appearing relationship and worrying about losing yourself. But also it's super important to mention that you do acknowledge the privilege of being in that relationship and you are in a position now to help even more, which you are doing. So that is awesome. And I think sometimes gets lost when we start feeling that imposter syndrome and we feel like we can't even participate in the activism, but you definitely and clearly can. I love calling that imposter syndrome. It absolutely is. With sex and gender and even sexual orientation being mixed in and conflated or incorrectly used interchangeably, have you observed any specific situations in genetic counseling that have been problematic? I think that as providers, we need to start using those terms appropriately. One of the most common situations that you wind up seeing that coming up is in calling out NIPT results, right? Or NIPS or cell-free fetal DNA testing or whatever you want to call it. Speaking of proper terminology, but we have got to get over feeling like saying, do you want to know predicted sex? If you're going to disclose that information. I think that it makes just people uncomfy saying the word sex, but we have to stop saying gender. Gender is a social construct and a fetus has not gotten around to doing anything like that. (laughs) They still have some time. The conversation regarding discussing detection of Y chromosome material is obviously an entire thing in and of itself. But when disclosing that information, I just would really love seeing consistency across all medical providers, but certainly in the genetic counseling community about distinguishing between those two things. It's small, but it's important. It establishes, I think, a more intimate understanding of those concepts for the medical providers themselves. So while it can seem a little petty, it opens their minds to understanding, again, that these are distinct processes and that gender is constructed. It emerges with time and cannot be applied to a fetus. And I think that actually very important lessons can be taken away from using these terms correctly. Oh, of course. Hearing you have to almost justify you making this point and saying things like it might be small, it might be petty. It just activates my fight or flight, especially with the turmoil that is going on in policies that are so actively harming trans children, especially right now. And in reality, it's a small change for us to make and it's a small action for us. But the impact is truly life or death for some people. Yeah, you can hear even in the way that I'm discussing it, that I've had this conversation over and over and over and over again, you know, and have absolutely absorbed the words that people use to argue back at me. There's trends all over, you know, the sex and gender spectrum and in how people are treated as far as how we acknowledge their opinions or their expertise. And so this also just reminds me of how oftentimes like women or femme people have to almost apologize for educating people in order to be heard because we're so afraid of people getting on their defenses that we're more focused on just having someone even open up to a conversation versus actually getting a message across. Absolutely. Especially as younger appearing people, I think, as well, because a lot of these conversations happen not only with largely, frankly, (laughs) white men, but many of the times when you push against these folks or 
people who wind up having disproportionate amount of power, right? It winds up being someone who also has age over you, potentially class over you, certainly not in my case, but for others, racial dynamics can come in. And so a lot goes into it. You also mentioned that some people are afraid to make the change because saying sex can be uncomfortable. And just from the perspective of us as the medical provider, as the healthcare provider, that's something I think we just have to get over. We need to look internally at our own psychosocial, psychological barriers that prevent us from doing that. Because I think in anyone's genetic counseling practice, there will be uncomfortable comments or questions made by a patient or a provider and not being prepared for that can really set us back. I don't think that the word sex should be impolite. I think if we use it more often, it'll take away from the stigma a little bit. It's time to recontextualize it. On the same topic of sometimes getting those uncomfortable or awkward questions, have you ever or do you ever have parents asking you if things like gender, sexual orientation are genetic or biological? And if so, how do you handle that? I get asked about that quite a lot. I work in reproductive medicine, but I also work in pediatrics. In pediatrics, I do wind up seeing the majority of folks who would fall into the intersex spectrum or would identify with having a DSD, for example. And so obviously it comes up in that type of context. And I think it's really important to discuss that in more detail when you're working with families. And in a prenatal setting, our patients are constructing their dreams of their child. And that includes, for a lot of people, this very, in our society, socially relevant component, right, of sex or of gender. I've had multiple patients question me when discussing X and Y chromosomes. Oh, so this means for sure that it's determined by, you know, da, da, da. and for sure being a man is determined by having a Y chromosome, for example. And that opens a door to have conversations about that's not necessarily the case. And if the need arises to come up of me discussing X chromosome or Y chromosome, I do mention that two X's is sometimes, you know, most often associated with being a woman and an X and a Y is most often associated with being a man. And I think even saying, that opens the door and has prompted patients to ask me about that. I work in a very rural setting with a 90% Medicaid population. The majority of my patients identify as Catholic and as Hispanic. And those conversations, I think, are very unique because of the population that I work with. And because I have the privilege of oftentimes being the first person to explore these concepts with my patients, it's a real opportunity. And I try as best as I can to stay accurate and to project non-judgment and inclusivity as much as possible and just to encourage curiosity to have my patients ask me questions so that we can explore that information a bit more. It certainly doesn't come up in every single genetic counseling session, you know, and ultimately the focus of a genetic counseling session is usually not entirely on that. But when the opportunity arises, I've never had one of those conversations go poorly. Generally, it seems like a very open-minded and balanced just exchange of information and perspectives. And all that I can do is hope to introduce folks to a more holistic, broader understanding of the world. Even just by using accurate language, even if we're not going to go into the whole social conversation, just small word choices can make a big difference. And full disclosure to the podcast listeners, Becca was actually one of my supervisors. And I think this is one of the really important takeaways that I got. Are there any other specific practices that you employ as a genetic counselor to actively combat some of these stigmas? 
So I think one of the things that I do and that I reflect on really frequently, in particular as a provider in reproductive medicine, is constantly challenge and reflect on how I explain and describe intersex conditions. I think that this is obviously a huge factor in a person's decision to continue or end a pregnancy, right? That comes up whenever you note a genetic difference in a pregnancy, especially because I practice both in peds and reproductive. I think a lot about the conversations regarding diagnoses in general and how they vary in these contexts. When we review them in pediatrics, we are much more hopeful and work harder to normalize the conditions. And this is not necessarily unjustified, right? Since in pediatrics, we're counseling with respect to a parent's relationship with their child. And in reproductive medicine, we're talking about a fetus. And these are distinct settings that absolutely cannot be a one-to-one comparison. But with respect to pathologizing many of these conditions, we practice how we were trained. And what do we remember about intersex or sex chromosome aneuploidies, any of these conditions generally? We're taught about health consequences, either real or perceived, a susceptibility to neurodivergence or developmental disabilities. Of course, there are contexts where this would make sense. There are certainly circumstances where an intersex condition occurs in the context of even very severe health consequences. But when it doesn't, if you spend a majority of your conversation with your patient describing health consequences, that's a biased conversation. We are taught in so much detail how to describe medical features and not so much how to describe lived experiences, especially of these more mild or even asymptomatic genetic differences. I've had patients tell me that the way that I have described in particular sex chromosome variations has changed their minds regarding termination. I firmly believe that a pregnant person has the right to elect a termination at any time for any reason. So instinctively for me, it rattles me to think that I, quote unquote, talked someone out of an abortion. But I have to educate patients in a way that I think is accurate and representative of what we're reviewing, of the variation that we're reviewing. And that means I carry the responsibility of the impact of my words. And I feel the need to balance the education I know other providers will give to that patient to give accurate, non-judgmental information as much as possible. And again, to as much as I can, especially in this arena, to highlight the actual words and experiences of these people as well. It's interesting that you said that you feel like you may have talked someone out of a termination. When I hear that and how you describe that education piece and just providing that more complete and balanced information, it seems like without that information and have had they elected a different procedure, is that truly informed consent when it mm-hmm. seems like people are making decisions when they don't understand why they're making that decision? We might think we're talking someone in or out of something when really we've just provided a complete picture that they did not have before. Absolutely. I think that you always have the fear of either educating improperly or contributing to the stigma of abortion. You don't want to do either of those things. And as a reproductive counselor, having the weight of not wanting to contribute to either stigma, I have that a lot. And I think about it a lot. You know, I don't think that in this context, it is a bad thing to quote unquote, talk someone out of an abortion. But I think instinctively, because we are in reproductive medicine, so accustomed to fighting back immediately to anyone has the right to an abortion, we're prompted to do that over and over and over again. It's so 
instinctual now, you know, to have that come to the forefront of your mind, even when I feel like I'm providing the most accurate information possible. And if this person's goal is a healthy child, and that's informing their reproductive decision making, then it is my goal to assess what their definition of that is. And in many cases, that goal is aligned with whatever variation that we've found. When we think of all areas of clinical practice and clinical genetic testing, reproductive health is really one of the only settings where we do report on variations that don't necessarily impact our medical well-being and our health. And with intersex conditions being so common, do you have any feelings about reporting on sex chromosomes and reporting on things that don't necessarily affect health? And do you think that this could set a precedent on other trait reporting in the future? I think it's a tough one. I don't think that that's a decision for any one person to make. What I would really love to hear is the opinions actually from people that this has impacted the most. I would love to hear from the trans community. I would love to hear from the intersex community, from people who identify as having a DSD about what they feel about this. And as well, surveying parents and multiple other perspectives. I think that what would be interesting to ask about and to see, for example, someone with 47XXX is knowing your karyotype in any way beneficial to the construction of your identity. Do you like knowing that? Do you think that it's interesting? Are you glad to have that knowledge? Or do you feel like it led to you being labeled as having a genetic condition when that's probably not an appropriate thing to say? Do you feel like it harmed you more than it helped you? I would love to hear from people who actually have been impacted by this before I think I made my full call on that. Part of the reason too is that it is so ingrained in our society at this point. And I don't want to be a gatekeeper of information from my patient, be that a pregnant person or a fetus who ultimately develops in this hypothetical into a person of their own. And that information was available to me and I didn't disclose it. It's tough. I think that in a way, it's obviously not nearly as charged, but benign inversions that we know about, we know how confused other providers can be when they see that noted on a report. We know with variants of uncertain significance, how those have real damaging consequences for people being labeled as having genetic conditions. And so weighing the desire to affirm a patient's desires and not to withhold information against the possibility of real harm. I always have a new personal or social dilemma after I speak to a classroom of high schoolers on a career day. There's so much uncharted territory on even what you could ask, let alone how many guidelines or perspectives and position statements that we have the capacity to make. I think we really just need to hear from the folks that this is impacting more. And I don't think that we have enough of that information. One of the main goals that I had with my thesis beyond honestly exploring what these experiences even were, was just straight up to start the conversation about these folks and genetic counseling because it hadn't been done to my knowledge before then. It was just to educate and to amplify voices as much as I possibly could to try to increase awareness within the genetic counseling community. And I think that as genetic counselors were taught so, so well how to educate and explain, again, particularly health consequences or susceptibility etc. But I think we need to be taught better how to listen and how to solicit patient experiences better and how to use the words of those folks better and integrate them better into our own counseling when we're reviewing this with families.
Yeah, and for any students, current perspective listening, Becca just threw out a ton of great basics topics. If you have not chosen yet, scroll back a few minutes because there are questions that we and I'm sure many more people want answered because you're right, we don't have that data yet. How do you check if the language you are using and the terms you use are the most preferred? Because we know language is ever evolving. So do you have any practical advice for that? I think that I could also always be more thorough about this. Everyone always can. I was just looking back at my thesis before having this conversation, and I saw multiple terms that I cringe at now. (laughs) Things have changed significantly, even in the however many years it's been since I wrote that. And I'm sure if I listen to this recording in five to 10 years, I will cringe further, you know, (laughs) because these things do evolve and change, and we learn how better to address each other. We evolve with time. I tend to refer back to support groups quite often often to see how people describe themselves. And this obviously varies significantly. That's why in part, I go back and forth a little bit with still using the term DSD occasionally, because I've worked with a significant number of people who don't necessarily identify as intersex, and they do identify in that way. And I try to kind of navigate going back and forth to try to respect both perspectives. And so generally, when I'm working with a new patient, it's real simple, but I just ask for their preferences. And that was reflected in my research time and time and time again. I had multiple open-ended questions in my thesis because, again, one of my main goals in doing this was to amplify voices of these folks as much as possible. And so including multiple open-ended questions and quoting them directly in my thesis was really, really important to me. I think the most common thing that people said is, please just ask what I want to be called and then call me that thing. And it is so simple, but it's obviously such a hugely important just piece of respect and humanity that you can give to a person. Working with a new patient, I just ask. And if it's a new diagnosis, in particular, my population to folks who may never have encountered these concepts before, I myself just try to offer options for terms so they can begin navigating what sounds the most authentic to them personally. So simple solution that gets overlooked so much, the just ask and the fear too, that even doing this podcast, I was just thinking, I hope I don't say something wrong. You're like, I probably will because there are so many terms and it will never be a one size fits all. It's similar to white guilt and white shame, right? I get so focused on what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And that's a version of narcissism, right? Ultimately, a lot of these folks, while they've been through some significant significant trauma, and these terms can still do incredible amounts of damage. A lot of the times in conversation, people understand your intention, and they'll have more patience with you. And it's not going to have the same level of impact as long as you're trying. And so I try as best as I can also to ground myself as much as I can in that rationale and try thus to remove my focus from the fear and instead towards the movement. If we have the intentions people can recognize that. But on the other hand, we have to prioritize impact over intent. There are times people will say, oh, you know, I'm trying and they use that as a defense mechanism. Totally. The balance there of like the paralysis by analysis versus apathy is definitely important there. 
So when you do learn something new or have an interesting case or anything that you think other people might not know and might benefit from, do you plan out ways that you might bring this to peers or colleagues? Do you just kind of let it come up naturally in conversation and hope it takes off? Where are you in these personal stories versus getting information from a peer-reviewed study? My colleagues and I carve out frequent time, my close colleagues in particular, to discuss these sorts of things. And I try to make it a point as much as I can to go over with my students discussing terminology that we use as a big part of the type of education that I try to provide. When you're a supervisor in particular, word choice is something that's discussed very, very frequently. Sex, gender, even past that with racial, socioeconomic, religious inclusions. These are things that are so ingrained in the society that we live in that they come up constantly, right? It's not hard to find a space in a conversation where sex or gender would come up. It's constant that people will discuss this type of thing. And so I think that the opportunities arise really frequently. And I think that most people are fairly curious about this type of thing. It's interesting for them to talk about in my personal life. While there definitely are times where I intentionally try to carve out space in particular to educate myself and to come to consensus with my colleagues that we're using correct terminology, I think there's just a lot of opportunity for spontaneous discussion with these types of topics. Sometimes that more natural setting can be more productive than attending a class or a lecture. And we've done a lot of discussion about the broader umbrella of different sex characteristics and sexual orientations and different gender identities. But going back to how this relates directly to our practice as genetic counselors, do you have any advice for how we specifically combat the history of eugenics and discrimination against people with intersex traits? There is a really wonderful NIH discussion about this recently with other experts, including bioethicists who are much more educated than me. The reported video is available online still. It's a roundtable discussion titled, Does Genetic and Genomic Screening Keep Open the Door to Eugenics? Which I would highly recommend. But throwing in my two cents, which I know echoes some of what was said there. To preface, I think within the context of clinical practice, our primary goal is to promote patient autonomy. While it can be difficult for me, that means that my patients may make decisions that challenge my own values. It's impossible to say really why an individual is truly making the decision that they're making. And so perhaps if we're discussing a prenatal diagnosis of 47XXY and a patient elects termination, while challenging for me, maybe in the background, this patient wanted to terminate anyway and was going to anyway and is using that as a justification in their own mind. You never actually know. The full burden of social change can't lay on a single person <laughs> in, the, in the general population. Like we can't expect a single GC to just go ahead and end eugenics. Instead, the social change relies much more heavily on institutions and people with disproportionate power. The narrative so often tries to shift responsibility back on a typical single individual. And I think that that narrative was intentionally created to shift attention and distract us from holding those in power accountable. We cannot alone combat the social machine that constructs to heteromasculinity. But we can push our hospitals to provide gender-inclusive bathrooms, for example. As medical providers, we do hold increased amounts of power regarding these topics compared to non-medical providers. And I absolutely think it's our responsibility, furthermore, to educate ourselves so that we can do our jobs to educate our patients appropriately. As individual providers as well, our focus should be to leverage what power we do have to hold these larger institutions accountable. The power dynamic is easily forgotten. 
And yes, one individual cannot do everything, but there are spaces where an individual can end up making a big impact, like you said, addressing changes within your own hospital or institution that are more feasible and can be done. Everyone should look to their institutions and see who's in administration, ask who you can talk to to make these changes. It actually makes long-lasting, huge impacts on people. Thank you, Rebecca. We so appreciate your candid insights, reflections, and call to action for our field. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. Thank you again to all of our speakers for highlighting these important topics. And thank you to all our listeners. You can look forward to hearing more on this topic at the NSGC annual conference in November. In addition, for general educational opportunities in the genetic counseling space, check out the online education center at nsgc.org. In particular, There are several great upcoming webinars which are available for continuing education credits. Stay tuned for the July webinar from the Precision Medicine Special Interest Group, which will take place on July 13, 2022. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.